Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. The question for episode 77 is, what is it to appreciate beauty? read The Sense of Beauty by George Santayana from 1896. You can join a discussion, get a free version of the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Owen in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. Ooh, gang's all here. So I've been looking forward to this one for a long time because I love them aesthetics discussions. And actually, the chief thing that delayed this was I was determined that we would get another celebrity, like a big-time rock star or artist or something like that. However, after sending this particular book link to a bunch of folks like that, and then revisiting the book myself in preparation for this, I began to understand why they might read two pages of the book and say, no, I don't want to do this. Because he doesn't get around to talking about art for a little while, like specifically about art. And, and I know this also because we had this as a, I did this as a not school group. So some other listeners a couple months ago read this book or parts of it in advance. And they're all like, why is he obsessing on the difference between morality and aesthetics? Like, we know that's different. Why? But that's the tradition out of which this came, that in the old tiny Greek time, it's not even clear whether there was even a concept of beauty, specifically just aesthetic beauty abstracting from any notion that it was also morally good. So if you look at Plato, you get the forms, the beauty, the one, the divine presence, whatever, as it's all the same thing. The idea of something that is decadent, but yet beautiful, doesn't really come up. That's considered it briefly within our Gorgias episode, we talked about the pastry maker, you know, someone who just pleases the senses, but is not actually pleasing you spiritually is, is scum, is not... <laughs> So that would not be true beauty. A priori, the sort of conceptual distinctions that we make ourselves all the time are ruled out in advance. Nonetheless, I think he, even though he's coming out of that tradition and he read Hume and Kant and other folks, it's a surprisingly modern to me. From what I read about Santayana, he was a naturalist before naturalism was cool. It's one of the things. So he thinks that all these things are human activities. It's not that objective beauty is the traces of God lying in, in the earth or something. No, he wants to do something like a modern psychological examination of what it is to appreciate beauty. The only difference is, of course, it's 1896. The idea of what the proper methods of psychology are is, of course, pretty different than now. He's not raising, like, what experiment could we do to figure out whether this theory I've just put forward is correct? It's more or less phenomenological. It's more or less reporting on your carefully observed experience, not in terms of I'm entering a reverie and I'm going to look at now I'm contemplating the beautiful thing and what's going on in my head. It's not that kind of direct but it's just psychological speculation of a pretty attractive sort, I think. What did you guys think? So the beginning of the book, when he talks about 
why are we going to consider beauty? And he wants to set out the possibility that our understanding of beauty is not exactly a sixth sense, but it's a determination of the soul based upon value. And he wants to explore what that is and how that works. And he's trying to do something that's pretty attractive in that he wants to ground it in terms of value, but not have it lose the sense of judgment about beauty. And so he has, especially at the end, a kind of big defense of the notion of beauty and the sense of beauty as being discoverable and understandable. And in fact, a part of us as human beings operating at a high level as part of the fulfillment of what we are as human beings alongside contemplation that he would maybe associate with straight up philosophical thinking or along Aristotelian lines or something. So that's his goal. And he, after setting that out at the beginning, wants to break it down, as Mark said, pretty phenomenologically, looking at how material and form and then expression, which are pretty mm -hmm. traditional categories for talking about aesthetics, work in this way. The cant is not to try to appeal to how every form or every material is a reflection of some ideal that is not there. He wants to try to articulate how that ideal comes out of our experience, but grounded out of the imminent activity or imminent experience with the thing. So there is, for him, all tied up in it, the experience that we have with it, but a kind of, I want to use the word objective, but he refers to objectification in a very specific way. So I want to use the word something like absolute or referent or all those other words, which he would qualify because he wants to maintain this sort of value-centered relation in it. I found it pretty interesting. I really liked the way in which he sort of delved into experience and talking about individual shapes and forms and stuff. I found it a little bit tedious at times, where I was kind of hopscotching around a little bit, I guess. Yet skimmable, luckily, that everything's broken up into nice little sections. Yeah. On the other hand, it's not always obvious like where the big payoff is going to come. You're just reading this part that doesn't seem that exciting. And then, whoa, there's like some really astute observation in there that you wouldn't necessarily have noticed if you were just skimming along. I did feel a little bit like I was sifting for gold at times and that it would go from being, you know, okay, interesting to having, as you said, very astute observations. It wasn't clear to me if it all came together really well. Because by the time I get to the end, his admonition about the moral character of aesthetics and wanting to separate from that, he wants to hold on to something of that that's not exactly moral, but again, has to do with maintaining value. So here's the way I was thinking of it. He wants to maintain the idea that you can have corrupted taste and that you can be ignorant of beautiful things. And the idea that working to hone your taste is a valuable thing, and it is part of being a human being. And you can not just have corrupted taste, but just have really crappy taste. And that that's a perfectly legitimate judgment. And in fact, that there's a way in which you can say that about aesthetic judgments in general. So it is value laden, and in some important ways relative, but it's not relative in the way you would typically think of it is that it's all relative, man. <laughs> Yeah, it's not the case that he would say, you can think whatever you want to think about that piece of art and whether or not it's artful or whatever. I don't think he would go that way, but understanding exactly how that argument works, I can't say that I found it easy to 
understand the argument exactly. Seth, Wes, opening statements. Did you like the book? Um, yeah. I liked uh, what I read of it. <laughs> I didn't get through the whole thing, but yes. His prose style is very attractive. He writes in that kind of turn-of-the-century or pre-turn-of-the-century way where sometimes I have to read sentences twice because there's a cadence to the language that you need to be able to connect to in order for it to make sense. But this is, I would say, more... Uh, I want to use the word polemical, but only in the sense that this is not an argument in favor of his point of view. It's an articulation of it. Yes. And it's not a problem to me, but for people who maybe are very connected into the Danto Goodman way of looking at these things, it could be a little off-putting. So that's my initial reaction. Well, speaking of, so Arthur Danto, the guy that we did our first aesthetics podcast on, had contacted us and told us how much he liked it. And when I let him know that we were covering this book a couple of years ago when we decided to, to do this book, he said, oh, yeah, you know, he met up with him at some point. And Santayana had some things to say about this. And I was floored. I mean, I know Danto is 81 or 82 years old now, but uh, still, Santayana, this is 1896 he wrote this book. But actually, if you just look on Wikipedia under the sense of beauty, in an anecdote retold by art critic Arthur Danto of a meeting with Santayana in 1950, Santayana is reported to have said, they let me know through the ladies that I'd better publish a book on art, of course. So I wrote this wretched pot boiler. <laughs> <laughs> so the story of this book, which I have a little more information on because I have, I picked up his uh, giant biography, Persons and Places, which is also a very skimmable book. And it won a bunch, a lot of awards for being like a really great autobiography and also gives the dirt on William James and Bertrand Russell and all these other people that he dealt with and what it was like to be at Harvard. William James was actually one of his professors. And you can actually see that sort of throughout this book, just the form of naturalism that all these concepts, like the ideals, like... Dylan mentioned, are things that are human invention. You know, maybe that's going back to Hume, but that's something that's very much of his era. So he started, he was an undergrad at Harvard. He took over teaching because William James pushed on him this course on, I believe it was Hume and Locke and somebody else. So he did that. And then he did as his second course, an aesthetics course. And he was sort of pressured to specialize. He had very wide interests. He wanted to write his uh, undergrad dissertation or something on Schopenhauer. He was actually discouraged from doing that and wrote on some Lotzi or some totally forgettable figure. So he tossed this aesthetics course for a couple semesters. I've got a, just a paragraph from Persons and Places where he talks about this. I was a kind of poet. I was alive to architecture and the other arts. I was at home in several languages. Aesthetics might be regarded as my specialty. Very well. Although I didn't have and haven't now a clear notion of what aesthetics may be, I undertook to give a course in that subject. It would help to define my status. I gave it for one or two years, and then I wrote out the substance of it in a little book, The Sense of Beauty. The manuscript of this book went from local publisher to publisher and was rejected, right? and it was eventually accepted. And uh, it did not prove a financial loss to the publisher, although it had neither a large sale nor a warm reception from critics. My sham course in aesthetic had served its purpose, and so I had my little book. And then talks about how it enabled him to basically do more steady teaching and make a little more money at Harvard. So this was not a book written out of passion. This was a book written out of professional obligation, which I think explains why it seems to drag in points. Like, oh, I got to write. But nonetheless, he's such a brilliant, interesting guy. And there's so much just creeps its way in here. The reason I think you would call it a sham course in aesthetics is because there's so much in here that is not about aesthetics, that this stuff about ethics, stuff about not comprehensively about metaphysics, but 
establishing this sort of naturalism that I mentioned. Yes, there is an overall structure that sort of makes sense. It's really a psychological analysis. We're going to do this analysis of what the sense of beauty, if there is such a thing, is, how reactions of somebody finding something beautiful occur. And we'll do that through looking at these categories of what could feed into that. Is it the matter of the thing? Is it the fact that it has pretty colors and bright sounds? Is it the form of the thing? Is it the relation between the objects? That's the one that he actually thinks is sort of beauty proper. Or is it expression, the fact that you're talking about pleasant things. And he has a whole section of the book that says expression, pretty much beauty is all about really form. He's already established in this, in the, the second big chapter. So in the chapter on expression, he says this can help. It helps if you're writing about angelic things. It's not necessary, but if you are writing about something ugly, writing or painting or whatever, it's beautiful in spite of the negative subject matter. It's never the scary, horrible thing that is itself beautiful. It's always just the fact that it's set in a nice way. And this is part of the way he's going to analyze what makes good taste in art, that if you rely too much on expression, too much on pathos, too much on comedy, too much on uh, showing things that are supposed to be morally upright, then you have basically bad taste. You're not really recognizing beauty where it is, which is in the form. Anyway, even though he, the book as a whole is set out in those categories, I don't know if he had this fundamental theory that imbues the whole thing so much as well, this seems like a good enough scheme to then be able to talk about a lot of individual insights. That makes sense, I think, for accounting for why there's like a little bit of a, a heap sense to the book <laughs> rather than a, as you said, a, a formal argument, sort of a stating of his point of view. In the introduction, I think he summarizes sort of something like his twin goal of the book. One of it is to explore the function of aesthetics and beauty itself, and then also to really explore the basis of our preferences, which I think he says that that's what beauty is all about. There'll be a you know sort of theoretical exploration. Then it also, he says, insight into the basis of our preferences, it should, if it could be gained, would not fail to have a good and purifying influence upon them. It would show us the futility of a dogmatism that would impose upon another man judgments and emotions for which the needed soil is lacking in his constitution and experience. And at the same time, it would relieve us of any undue diffidence or excessive tolerance towards aberrations of taste when we know that there are broader grounds of preference and the habits that make for greater and more diversified aesthetic enjoyment. So that's an interesting set of claims that you have to be prepared to appreciate beautiful things. That's the first part. And the second part is you ought to not tolerate terrible taste in the sense that being insensitive to it. So a separate question of what you should do about that, but you should be able to recognize and understand that not only is there bad taste and unbeautiful things, that you should have a taste for beautiful things, is that you should also um, understand what they are. I'm still a little bit uncertain about how that cashes out in the end, except for stating that it's a fact. I mean, what I would be inclined to think that it can't help but uh, amount to a certain kind, a certain version of a standard in making that judgment what amounts to beautiful things. And I think he's fairly abstract about it. So I listened in preparation to this, to this uh, series of aesthetics lectures that I'll post online, but it, it just gave quick introductions to Hume and Kant and Aristotle and some others. And he's keenly aware of his predecessors of Hume and Kant in particular in this book, but he seldom talks about them by name. He mentions them when there's a specific claim that somebody made you know, like Kant is famous for saying, beauty is disinterested, right? It's like finding pleasure in something that you observe, 
but it's a particular kind in that you don't actually want to consume or have the thing, right? So if you just are looking at a beautiful woman because you, you want her, that's not appreciating the beauty. It's only when you are already satiated or not inclined that way or something that maybe you could appreciate the beauty in itself. And so he, he has a argument against that in particular. The reason I bring this up is because the conversation that he's entering into was all about, on the one hand, is beauty subjective or objective? So he's giving a specific, it's sort of a hybrid between the two is where he's, he's going to come down. And then there's also the question of, should you be able to convince other people when you find something beautiful that it in fact is beautiful? Those are obviously very related. If it's a, an objective thing and you are correctly observing the beauty, then you should be able to, what, educate the other person something to bring them into this. But for instance, the way Hume cashes it out is kind of like you would expect, given our, if you listen to our Hume on Ethics chapter, that his comments about aesthetics are of the standard of taste, is his famous work, are pretty similar, but they have to be based somehow empirically. In other words, we can tell what is beautiful if it is something that would please everybody who is educated enough to get it. Right. So it's not just that it pleases everybody. You're not just doing a survey mill in our utilitarian episode on higher and lower pleasures. And it's a very similar kind of consideration. Well, he wants to Santiana, he wants to say it's the futility of a dogmatism that would impose upon another man judgments and emotions for which the needed soil is lacking in his constitution and experience. So in other words, he's saying finding something beautiful is kind of like this, in some ways, inexplicable chemical reaction. It's just this brute between you and the thing. Now, it's not totally inexplicable because we can break down again into this form and matter and expression and look at what it is about your character that might make you appreciate this and might make me not appreciate it. But ultimately, that's the expression. Either you find something beautiful or you don't. It's kind of silly to try to say this is objectively beautiful because that's not a proper description of what's going on. But why is that not a proper description? I mean, he takes some trouble early on. He uses the language of judgment. Mm-hmm. And he says, judgments of beauty are not the same thing as judgments of fact or judgments of science. And he says, well, they're more like moral judgments. Well, what do I mean by that? And that leads into what you were just describing, you know, that he's going to go down and talk about the subjectivity of the phenomenon and the immediacy of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it's an important point for him. Judgments of beauty have a feeling associated with them. So I think part of what's important is talking a little bit about that distinction that he makes and whether we want to talk about a faculty of judgment or about judgments, it's important to kind of lay out that distinction. He says in um, the second section, which he subtitles uh, or preferences ultimately irrational. Yep. At the very beginning he says, we may therefore at once assert this axiom important for all moral philosophy and fatal to certain stubborn incoherences of thought that there's no value apart from appreciation of it and no good apart from some preference of it before its absence or its opposite. So at that point, all value has to do with appreciation. And on the next page, he says, values spring from the immediate and inexplicable reaction of vital impulse and from the irrational part of our nature. The rational part is by its essence relative. It leads us from data to conclusions or from parts to wholes. It never furnishes the data with which it works. If any preference or precept were declared to be ultimate and primitive, it would be thereby declared to be irrational, since mediation, inference, and synthesis are the essence of rationality. So I think he's making a pretty strong point here that 
values are at the level of data Mm -hmm. and that they are unbreakable pieces of things. You wouldn't speak of elements of data as having parts that you're going to compare. The act of rationality is on those parts. That is those parts of data and relations among them. Values have to do, and the judgments that come from them, you're working on the very bits themselves. And those values are judgments that are, he calls them irrational in a very technical way, that are not about comparison. They are about the value of the thing. And in the end, that value is is a trained thing, I think. Maybe it would be better to say it can be trained, but it is a sensibility. Yes, it requires being able to observe things in certain ways. And he has a lot of comments in different parts of the book about how sort of a refined character will be able to find a beauty in this sort of situation, whereas a brute will not. But the experience itself is primary. How do we want it? It sort of makes me just think of that this is him stating one of the corollaries to Hume's is-ought distinction, that just by looking at facts, you can't derive a value from them. Another way of interpreting that is there are sort of primitive value facts. <laughs> that is primitive, like you were saying, data of experience where values are just given an experience. I'm not ready to commit to value facts or an ontology of values. I was under the impression that what he was trying to put out here was he was saying, if you take a fact of science or a fact of mathematics or simply an empirical fact, you can make a judgment about whether or not that is true or false or make a judgment about whether or not it's raining or the cat is on the mat, whatever you want. And you can do that without passion. There's no feeling associated with it. There's no value in that judgment. It mm -hmm. is or it is not. What he's trying to say here is he says, look, when you make a preference, not just that, that a cat is on the mat, but that it comforts me that a cat is on the mat, or it disturbs me that a cat is on the mat, then you bring value into the equation. And what he means to say when he says it's irrational, I agree with Dylan that he's, he's using it technically. What he's saying is that that preference is a feeling. He's maintaining some kind of more traditional rigid distinction between reason and feeling or reason and emotion. And he's essentially saying when you make a judgment and there's a feeling or an emotion attached to it, then you are making an irrational judgment. That was the way I read this. So in the end, he would have to have two categories of judgments. One would be these kinds of aesthetic judgments. Another would be analytical judgments, which end up being not judgments as much as conclusions. So from a process of rationality, of combining parts and holes and making comparisons and rational in a very technical sense of taking a ratio between things, then you would have a conclusion as a result of that kind of calculus. I think you were right, Dylan, to associate the irrational with data. The rational is about the relations between data, let's say, or drawing conclusions. It's use of the word irrational is to say it's primitive, it's data. And in some sense, the data, the reason why we hesitate to call it objective goes to the sort of Humean point, which is that when we talk about anything normative, when we talk about values, aesthetic or moral, the facts that we're concerned with are really facts about human nature. We are so constituted as to respond in certain ways to certain things. And there's your that basic constitution to or habit of reacting in a certain way is what grounds all of this. Later, he'll go on to say that, well, if we had different kinds of eyes, if we had compound right. eyes, 
or if we had a sense of smell that was multidimensional and gave us another way of understanding space the way our sense of sight does, we would have to adjust our understanding of aesthetics based on that. What we talked about as beautiful things would change as a result of that. Right. Can I read a passage from that same section? Please do. It is evident that beauty is a species of value, and what we have said of value in general applies to this particular kind. A first approach to a definition of beauty has therefore been made by the exclusion of all intellectual judgments, all judgments of matter of fact or of relation. To substitute judgments of fact for judgments of value is a sign of a pedantic and borrowed criticism. If we approach a work of art or nature scientifically for the sake of its historical connections or proper classification, we do not approach it aesthetically. Right. So, for instance, the critic who, when talking about Shakespeare, probably had professors like this. You wanted to appreciate Shakespeare, but they were all caught up in cataloging dates and times and giving you basically all the literary facts because that's a safer and easier place to go to get into the actual aesthetics is much muddier water. You guys have seen the movie Dead Poets Society, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. What you just said reminded me exactly of that movie and the scene at the beginning in which Robin Williams' character John Keating has the students rip out the introduction to the book of poetry because it has this grotesquely analytical description of the beauty of poems and how to ascertain what's a good poem and a bad poem and what its form was. And then, of course, at the end, we're brought back to this with the headmaster of the school forcing this down their throat. Yeah, except I think that introduction that they rip out, I think that was a structuralist sort of introduction. So in a way, that's right up Santayana's alley. It's very focused on form, analyzing literature in terms of form and leaving out, you know, they called these guys the new critics at the time, leaving out biography and politics and sociology, the kinds of things that are quite popular now in literary criticism. They call it new historicism, where they go on and on and on about, say, the history of Shakespeare's time. Well, I think Santayana is saying here that he would rather, he's sort of giving a structuralist or new critics an endorsement of that approach, where you, it's not against being analytical per se, but it's about focusing on these loosely related historical or sociological facts as opposed to getting right into the meat of it and saying, why does this sonnet work or not work, for instance? What is it that makes it a good poem or a bad poem? Those are aesthetic judgments. But if you want to talk about, yeah, Shakespeare's born at such and such a time, or in this poem, we see the influence of a previous poet. Arguably, those can sort of feed into aesthetic judgments. You'd have to make that argument, but they're not aesthetic per se. They're historical, sociological, and so on. One thing that I thought at this point was, What does it mean for something like conceptual art, where everything is sort of a concept and a symbol and it's arranged in a way? Well, I've never felt like you could come to a piece of conceptual art without being told what it's supposed to be doing. Then you can make some judgment about how it's doing it and whether it's doing it well. But you have to be told the scene, the concept that it's trying to bring off. This section made me wonder conceptual art itself ends up falling off the end. Mm. It doesn't fall off the end. It's in expression. It's in the category of expression. So if you're talking about the avant-garde stuff, you know, the urinal. So you see the Duchamp urinal in the museum. 
Well, if it was a really beautiful urinal with a beautiful form in itself, Santiana still might think it was legitimately beautiful. But there are the good things about expression. If, if it sort of expands your mind, the fact that that makes you think of a new thing and question what art is, like that's a good thing. But ultimately, the work is not going to have a lot of value because a really good work for him is one that you just keep coming back to and is just inexhaustible in its beauty. And that is more like a, a gimmick. It's more like a joke. Yeah. Yeah, we should distinguish between conceptual art, you know, and art, which is trying to sort of make a statement like a urinal or something like that. It's self-referential in some sense. Yeah, like John Cage's. And just abstract art, which might offend us if we think that art ought to be mimetic, if we think that it ought to represent something, be a picture of something. So I think abstract art, though, could arguably, especially since it's very focused on form, you could just have a very primitive aesthetic experience in relation to that. And that's, uh, you know, I think it would qualify, right? I think so. Santiana's view, yeah. Yeah. Luckily or not, this was written before the avant-garde art revolution. So he, he doesn't really have to consider that, even though this is more about beauty rather than what is art. Mm. You know, it's, it's just a different discussion than the one we had in the Danto episode, the yeah. challenge that comes from the avant-garde. People were doing some crazy things. We'd gotten into the romantic period and beyond by his time. And so he has a lot to say about, for instance, he has some screed he goes on against indistinct art. So like abstract poetry or, you know, and this would apply to a lot of modern abstract expressionism in painting. That if the value of the art is you're supposed to see something that's kind of an incomplete image and you're supposed to fill it in yourself, he's going to say, well, that's really cool in that it creatively juices you, but ultimately it's not worth that much because you're the one that's doing all the work and it's not going to present some enduring thing of beauty that you're going to be able to come back to again and again. And certainly it's not going to be something that's open to anybody that does not already have the creative spark within themselves. You would much prefer a finite, beautiful form, the Mona Lisa, something like that. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.